This episode sees the return of Rob Jacobs from Outlaw Strength. Rob has been a previous guest on the podcast back on episode 258, which will be linked up in the show notes. I wanted to get Rob back on the podcast to have a discussion around his training system. This was a really great episode of Rob, guys, and I hope you really enjoyed. Okay, Coach Jacobs. Rob, absolute pleasure to have you back on. You look great, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I love the I love the background. Oh uh, yeah, that's why one of the the logos I had developed. It's uh, yeah, seems it's to be good. well received. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. What, what is it? Is it original, or is it is it from something? Yeah, I had I paid a guy to like. To, I gave him. I sent him. You know, a bunch of uh, I guess inspirational ideas, and that was uh, he came back with the two. Uh, the one I have on on Instagram, and then the the card. So yeah. it's you know I love, like westerns and uh, the whole like Kill Bill feel of that's, like, samurai yeah. stuff with that's western the back, like yeah. backdrop. That's exactly that's, uh... what's comes to my mind. Kill Bill, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. <laughs> so listen, I want to get you back on. So we had you on originally, and we we had a great discussion that time. I know we touched on sort of you know some of your influences. We talked about Charles. We we talked briefly on sort of Jack Cruz and and, and his sort of influence. And we we actually spent a bit of time talking about the biosignature as well. It was a great conversation because my early my early influences too in SNC Charles definitely would have been one. Like I'm talking like 0809. Um, and indirectly, I w- he would have been influencing me through Boyle because Boyle was kind of like, he would have been like the first sort of influence me on program design. And Mike would always credit Charles to like influencing him with like the like the with the likes of supersets and trisets. So you know, it kind of just still through through Mike as well, and that got me into to Charles. And I actually did the PICP one and two in Dublin back in two thousand nine, which was which was great at the time. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, old school. He actually came into the class too. I remember towards the end of our it was like two weeks full on and it was own lacy and john connor had taken us for the and uh andre benoit they took us for the for the level one level two like collectively together and charles came at the end of level two and i remember like like i never seen him or in person but i remember he came in and she's like we've been learning this guy's whole principle so obviously like when i was young i was only like what is that 2009 so i was 22 like so you know you're young and like oh my god it's Jared Balogun <laughs> so I was like that it was like when I met Boyle for the first, like Mike would laugh now I remember the first time I met Mike sure you're starstruck and now it's just like oh Mike yeah and I sorry I don't mean in a bad way but you know it's just because I've known Mike now for you know 50 over 15 years that that now he and he'll always be a mentor to me as well but there is that sort of more peer relationship as well you know because he'd come to me looking for information which you know which obviously is always very flattering when when someone who you hold up in such esteem but yeah I remember I saw Charles for the first time we were like oh my god it's Jared <laughs> it was funny anyway yeah, so listen it's yeah great great to have you back on and um, maybe just touch again on your background um and, and after that what, what we what i discussed before we got on was where we want to delve into your system your model whatever way you want to word that where we're talking about like how you work with you know your clients be that an athlete or a cao or a general pop but maybe just give us a refresher on your background rob yeah so i started uh early 2000s mostly doing um uh, like speed development and uh, track and field kind of stuff, right? Teaching mostly like sprint mechanics and uh, the combine tests and, and actually the biomechanics of how to be faster at the test. So my, you know, my background's initially primarily like actual sport coaching and, and head coaching uh, and then segued into strength training and all that with, with some of those performance jobs and then got into being a strength coach for, I think my first actual like strength coaching job for a team was MMA. Uh, and then, you know, that sort of bled into doing strength coaching for track and field and then actually coaching track and field events before that. And 
doing MMA or, or at least I didn't compete at MMA, but I competed in jujitsu for a little bit. Um, and, you know, some, some of my sport backgrounds, golf, basketball, uh, baseball, you know, all that stuff. So played sports all my life. And my dad was a coach. He was my high school coach, which is a, <laughs> something else. Um, you know, so I do go through all that stuff and and get in with, uh, with Charles and, and I, I do feel like I've got a fairly well-rounded perspective on this because I did stuff the non-Poliquin way for 10 years, probably before our, you know, of my career, before I really started doing things a better way. So I've done and seen and experienced just about everything from, from West side to NASM, you know, <laughs> like polar opposites and, you know, and seen how stuff works and how fast stuff works and how slow stuff works. And that's one of the things that makes me such a believer in, in what I've learned from Charles and, and from the people he's, you know, learned from to build his system is that it, just about anything works. And you can see that from the dumbest strength and conditioning program in the world to the most elaborate program. And it all works. It's really just to, to what degree it works, how fast it works. And some stuff doesn't work for everybody, you know? Um, so that's a, I feel like I got a fairly unique perspective on that with a pretty broad range of sports, you know, doing everything from getting actors in shape for movies and TVs in like two weeks to uh 12 week programs, to combine testing, to, you know, title fights and MMA and national champion track and field sprinters. So fairly well-rounded, uh, well-rounded background there, I guess. Is there any particular one of those scenarios that you, you like to lean towards? So, yeah, I know you said like getting an actor ready or working with teams or having 12 weeks or combine, like, is there one you're like, that's the one I really love to work with, or is there like one or one or two ones that you'd love to work with there? I think pretty much every aspect of track and field so far has been, a lot of fun from, so I, so I coached uh, hurdles and triple jump uh, helped with a long jump and helped with the pole vault um, like the actual sport. So I really love the jumps and, and the hurdles in particular, but just coaching, you know, the, the track athletes in general, especially like we were talking earlier, like the throwers and the one, like they, that group tends to love the weight room a little bit more. I think, you know, like, cause football guys are a little bit more meat heady, but also they're just beat up all the time. Whereas the track and field athletes, you can get into more elaborate designs of, especially if you're you're controlling their sprint program, their, their practices, and then their weight programs, you know, you can really have a lot. Cause the, uh, I, I loved MMA just mostly because of my love of the sport and, and the, the chess aspects of jujitsu and, uh, Sambo and, you know, all those things. Um, but when I was in that environment, you know, I was the strength coach under the head coach and, you know, ruined a few fighters because I was told to do XYZ from the head fight coach, you know, like we got the most fast twitch fighter in the world, but he needs more endurance. So we got to do more cardio. We got it. And, and lo and behold, he starts, you know, he starts losing, but it's like, all right, man, I guess, you know, better than I do. So we'll, we'll just make him worse instead of better. Um, that is so soul destroying though. Is it like when you're looking off now, I've, I've just heard stories that when I was more physical preparation, and SNC looking up, I, I was actually never put in a situation where like I had to compromise my values, if you like, to a head coach. And to be honest, I don't think I ever, I think I'd, I'd walk away like before that would happen, but I have heard lots in it. Again, it depends. Like if you're working in an NFL and you have a house and a mortgage and kids and you're, you know, you need the salary, <laughs> that might be a different situation. I was lucky enough. I was always like on my own and never had big debts, but yeah, that must be soul crushing when you're, you, you know, you're in there and like, oh, this is, this is not going to end well. Yeah, this this one kid I'm I'm thinking about in particular. We he made it to uh, the Ultimate Fighter on the the show, like 
a long time ago. And it's a super, I mean, this kid walked around at like 225, just shredded, like 6'2", shredded at 225 and fought at 185. Like, well, maybe there's our endurance problem. <laughs> you know, the kids doesn't have any horsepower, yeah. but they like he was a, his his background was uh, was boxing. And as they like progressed, I guess, to try to make him better, they tried to make him wrestle more. And and basically took away boxing as his skill set to try to make him you know less vulnerable as a wrestler. But but rather than adding wrestling skills to his boxing skill set. They sort of like took away, tried to take away his boxing skill set and make him wrestle more. You know, so he'd like he'd take somebody down or get taken down and just get destroyed because uh, he was fatigued from the weight cuts and you know whatever. I like the the strength system. The first what got this kid to the Ultimate Fighter was not what drove him out. You know, like we he was strong as an ox, like so fast twitch. Right, did we I did a combination of. Uh, uh, it's interesting like how how much i don't like the west side barbell system for most athletes but for where i was with mma like you know a guy would have a fight and because these guys were doing it for a living and not like we didn't have camps you know like if i had six weeks to prep a kid for a fight i was extremely lucky and even at this stage you know the the, the kid had a fight and we're like all right we just signed a contract we're going to the the ultimate fighter pay-per-view taping or whatever it was you know and it's four weeks away all right, well, that's not a fight camp. We just peaked from a three-week camp. Now we got a four-week camp. Um, but using you know the West Side system where you're always developing and attempting to express a little bit of strength, mostly because it's because the volume corresponds really well with the endurance volume that they're having to do. You know, they're having to run, they're having to do their mat work, they're having, you know, he's doing his boxing skill session, he's doing his MMA skill session. You know, the kid was taking a beating. So you go low that low volume aspect of you know, pretty heavy strength with some power mixed in there. And the kids' numbers were just skyrocketing. So he was thriving on like two sessions a week. Uh, and, and you know, the beauty of the West Side stuff is that the recovery is, the volume is so low if you're not doing the the 100 reps of, of some of the nonsense at the end, right? And, and even all the, some of the other things that are better for lifters as a sport, if, if it's lifting more so than um, than MMA. And, and that worked great. It's crazy strong. I mean, we put like 30 kilos on, two different lifts, I think in, in about nine weeks, you know, and you got to remember these, their lifting experience is virtually non-existent. So that like, while that's a huge gain, you know, it's sort of newbie gains because um, these kids have lifted, but never organized or like with chains or any of that stuff, you know? So we got huge, huge bursts and then had to dramatically change all of his stuff. And, you know, you, you try to make it work like, all right, how can I make this look like he's getting tons of endurance training yeah. when the guy comes in? And, you know, like there's only so much you can do when they're just cardioing them into the ground. Like even if I wanted to train him exactly how I wanted to train him at that point, it's one of those things where it just like less is going to be more. So maybe we'll do a few sets of max strength and then we got to do some, you know, <laughs> some barbell complexes, I guess, or, or something, you know, because at, at that point, you know, that was 15 years ago or, or so now. And, you know, back then the it was all, this was right around the time that Tito, I think had like the first MMA strength coach or, you know, it, it was like right in there where, where some of those guys had like some of the fringe guys had a coach and they were kicking ass and people were starting to catch on. So, so we were sort of on the edge of a lot of that stuff, but you know, the head coach's knowledge of weightlifting was bodybuilding. You know, they were like, well, wait, you know, weightlifting makes them slow. So we gotta, everything's gotta be fast. Like bad weightlifting makes them slow. Yeah. <laughs> so 
you know, so, so that one was fun. The track's a lot of fun. I guess a long-winded answer to, to what I really enjoy. But, you know, I mean, and even even training some of the actors is a lot of fun because they're so dedicated to the body composition stuff. But then, you know, it, it depends on the actor because, like, I had one guy who was literally like a 40-second walk from the gym and would be 35 minutes late habitually. You know, so it's like, that's not fun. Um, but you know, so some of the movie, like the, the TV guys are a little harder, like we'd have a shoot and some stuff, but then some of the guys, we got a shirtless scene 16 weeks from now. And the dude was there every session, you know, the twice a day, sometimes three times a day, sometimes, uh, and the, the movie role I trained that uh, for one of the movies, uh, was great, you know? So, so some of them are really good. They're really fun. And then some of them are just like, you know, the guy was a nice guy. He was just like, it's like all right, I know we only got 10 minutes. We'll get as much done as we can. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the the movie one's in there because I, you know, I've heard of a few actors like where you, they're, they're basically paid to work out, like to get ready for a role. And I'm like, if you get someone's rededicated, I'd say that that's a good bit of fun you can have with that, you know, with those oh, guys. Yeah. You know, they have their chefs making their meals, they can train twice a day, and all they do is sleep in between. And they got like, you know, 16 weeks again in shape. So, like, and if you get someone who's dedicated to their craft, like, you know, like, like a Christian Bale for Batman type job, you know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah. I said that, that could have, you know, that could be, or, uh, <laughs> Tom Hardy for for the Charlie Bronson movie, like he had to he had to put on a lot of weight in a short period of time, and he was just like pizzas and bodybuilding, and it was it was meant to be mental, like that what he had to, <laughs> to get the weight on, like. But it's funny you mentioned the West Side method there with regards to the MMA fighters because actually West Side over the last I'd say maybe even ten years now because I visit I went to I was supposed to say visit but I visited it but I can't say the word I went to West Side <laughs> in 2015. And Tom Barry, who was uh, Louis's right-hand man, and he's still there now, Tom, since Louis passed. But Tom, at the time, was training a lot of MMA fighters. And actually, I think in that uh, one of Louis's, one of his last e-books, too, was a strength trainer for all sports. I think that's the title of it. There was a chapter in there specifically for, like, you know, sort of a carryover into MMA athletes. But they were starting to train a lot of uh, MMA athletes. And, two, actually, it's funny you mentioned you got some good results of that, too, because the first proper say strength program strength and conditioning program that i ever done now again i was young but i had been lifting weights since i was 16 so this one was about 20 like a first formal proper program was westside for skinny bastards the the 3.0 version <laughs> the, the one for four days a week and i absolutely loved that program because because uh, you said there you know and it, it resonated with me we were like yeah we, we took sort of the principles of that westside template got rid of the, sort of the the stuff they do at the end like you kind of said the nonsense there guys i was like yeah kind of the nonsense. like nonsense for like maybe even might argue for the powerlifters, you know, he'd be saying, oh, this, they do this amount of volume for this lift. And anyway, listen, he, rest in peace. I'm not going to argue with him. <laughs> I, had, I, I even had that discussion with him there. Like, you know, me and my fucking six foot two, 180 pounds skinny ass. And, you know, this is Louis Simmons. <laughs> but anyway, it was good crack. And he, and it's one thing I loved about him, he was open to all that too. You know, he was, he was, he'd full on want to have those discussions with you. But, uh, I it was more like the West Side for skin West Side for skinny bastard template in that you know so Joe obviously modified it to be a little more I don't want to say functional but a little more you know so like he would have on the dynamic day you you could do an Olympic variation but he would have you doing explosive jumps and like your sort of accessory work then was like you know lunge like a barbell reverse lunge and yeah. it might it might be like an RDL like you know rather than say like a ton of um GHRs or or the um what's the fuck other thing the uh, Hyper, 
the hyper extensions, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Rather than yeah, so you might do something more like you know split squats or reverse lunge or something like that. And obviously your warmups would have more speed and agility work in them as well. Like so, but yeah, I, I actually loved, I loved that. Like that, that took that template and it was distilled. And then just the fact that Westside eventually started training so many fires probably because of that, because like the high, the such high intensity but low volume of the, of the strength work. And then a lot of people I've heard over the years say, you know, there is always that discussion or debate about the speed work so like a lot of people like you know okay the speed work works if you wear a suit because it kind of matches the force curve with the bands but if you're a raw lifter it doesn't really work and then some people say well no i got great benefit from it it's like well is it speed work or is it more that it's like a deload you know that that, that it's, it's fatigue management almost that like it's the load is so light and you're moving the bar fast that you're kind of like getting a bit of a deload you know it's managing fatigue like and then some other people say well is it like technique work you're also getting so it's like it's like fatigue management and technique work you're getting in it's not really the speed you know people have all these discussions back and forth like so that that probably was an element of it too like you know so uh, it's interesting you say that and it is finally too like you were saying they're like trying to sneak in things that like looked like endurance but obviously weren't detrimental i remember like the first time when i was working with a team trying to implement high low you know like tempo runs and yeah. like and like gea like so get it games here in ireland like most sports are out like real sort of listen you're either going 100 percent or you're fucking you're acting the bollocks you know <laughs> and you're there you're there trying to explain to the manager no no on these tempo runs i don't want them going flat out because i want quality of it like and this is this is a low day like yesterday we did a load of speed work and we did a load of lifting and they, like i want them fresh for tomorrow session and it was funny because you'd be getting because they were in the habit of like come on lads push it out push it out and i'd be like no 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 don't push it out <laughs> you're pushing it tomorrow when we're sprinting not not now yeah. yeah so i was trying to get that mindset change but the lads in fairness were very very good enough but it's just funny that you're having to like change mindsets or and i obviously you know sneak things into you know so it's it's funny or make it make yeah, it look really- make, make it look like it's what they want the the kids in that situation are always they will do you know especially some of those mma guys would train you know like my um my roommate at the time was one of my most successful fighters and you know like we were, were you know we're best friends at the time still you know still buddies but best friends then and he was like whatever man tell me just tell me what to do tell me like can i eat this what should i have now you know it was great and we absolutely crushed it um and he was he was able to buck the system enough where like no running we did none none of anything anybody like anybody else wanted to do he was like no nah, rob's doing my stuff uh, so you know so it's great but you know some of those guys like because most of the fighters at, at that time for that team worked for the gym you know they taught the kickboxing classes they taught the jujitsu classes and you know the head fight coach was one of the owners of the gym so you can't well it was great to have one of the guys who was just like you know well screw you i'm gonna do what my strength coach says uh, they you know they all work that way but yeah it's uh, the the idea of doing that's what I wish more of the West side style of coach would kind of would take into consideration more is that you're not training someone to be a good squatter, right? Like you're all of those things you said are great. If you're, if you're trying to, if you need to be a great squatter or a great deadlifter or a great bench presser, but how much does, you know, bench press bar speed improve your 10 meter start? Like little to none, you know, like there's, but if you're doing jumps or throws or, 10 meter accelerates for your dynamic effort work or any of those things that could be such a, you know, you make some of those small tweaks, which to his credit, I think Louie was like all for any of those things that got better results for X, Y, Z. But, you know, I, I use the example all the time. Like some of the guys I have worked with in the past would, 
had a, a, a female training for fat loss under the West Side system with those like miniature orange mini bands on the bar and like a one pound plate doing speed work on dynamic effort day. And it's like, all right, at that point, I'm pretty sure her limiting factor to strength isn't bar speed. She'd never lifted before, <laughs> you know, and, and you see, and, but you see that with, with athletes too, you know, like I, I saw some of these, this guy would have you know, like in season volleyball players setting jump records with dumbbells in their hands, you know, like, why why like you're not doing anything you're just mimicking their sport at this point like this this girl is going to leave you and go spend four hours on the volleyball court and get hundreds of jump reps in at poor quality she doesn't know how to squat at all and you're max effort squatting your max effort deadlifting you're doing shitty speed work on a box squat you know like if if you watch the guys louis worked with and i mean any of those guys their box squat technique was pristine you know they're they're squat technique with no box was pristine and then you like you've got these guys that won't invest the time to teach someone how to actually train this way so much for like for posting videos of oh we set a new record you know they're uh whatever right our max effort day our max went up 0.75 pounds in six weeks like yeah if you did that four weeks in a row it'd probably go up like eight pounds <laughs> you know there's right now and then then move on, you know? So like there's, cause I love that system, but like I said, I've done so much stuff now. There's people it doesn't work for like Ed Cohn couldn't train that way. No way. Wouldn't have been successful. You know, like, and, and when, when your only tool is a hammer, everything's going to look like a nail. And again, I think to Louis's credit, I don't think he would have trained every single person the exact same way, even within his system. And it's the same thing with all those guys. Charlie Francis didn't do that. Pollockman certainly didn't do that. And, and, everything I've ever read and learned about Louie and different ways to train. I don't think he did that either, but it just bleeds down to, you have to do max effort. You have to do dynamic dynamic is squat bench and deadlift on whatever your days are. Like this kid doesn't squat. Like why, why are we getting that much extra technical work on something they don't do that really doesn't even transfer that much. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. And it, one thing, that was one thing I did appreciate about DeFranco's, um, modification of it like say on that was one thing he also said in his articles he was like so he did a max upper a max lower dynamic lower and a repetition upper for most people and like people are like why don't you do a, a dynamic upper and he's like because most kids come to me like they need to put on size and they're not strong enough they don't he's like they don't they haven't earned a dynamic upper body day like which made so exactly. much sense because you were getting guys like whose max bench press was like 135 pounds like you know 60 kilo and it's like yeah. what what are you going to do dynamic effort with there like the bar you know, so he was like, they need to put on size and strength. Like they don't need that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. and when you tell those kids to do a fast bench press, it looks like crap. Like, you know, I mean, you watch the, the guys again, the, the, the power lifters, the bench for a living, their max effort stuff looks identical to their slow competition bench. But, you know, you put a 16 year old in there, like, all right, we're going to do three reps fast as you can. It's awful. Like their regular bench is awful. And then you, you put bands and chains on this crap. It's just like adding you know, bungees to a, a kid who doesn't know how to run. It turns their their run into just utter trash. Yeah. So, and finally, on that too, I remember Alan Sherry, who he he he's a coach in Ireland, really good guy. You, you'd get on him well because he's he's you know he's a real cerebral thinker. We're training. He did a lot with Westside, and when that Westside certification came out, he did that too, and he got heavy into Westside for a while. And but again, we we had a great discussion because when I when I went there in 2015, I spent the summer. I was working at Boyles that summer. 
and I was that was the summer I, I was really you know you go to different pockets of your life where at that time I was reading a ton on old training literature like I read a lot of books that summer a lot of papers and I was saying to Alan I was like the more and more I read about let's say the West Side system and I look at Charlie Francis Hilo and I look at stuff Stu McMillan was doing also at the time and like the three-day rollover with Dan Pfaff. And then I read that book, you know, too, because Charles used to recommend it, the Thomas Cruz, The Science of Sports Training book. Like mm-hmm. there was such a common theme there of like, like if, if you took all of those, there was this common theme of, right, do something maximally, but that's probably a little bit less than the actual event. Do something that's slightly longer than the event, but but isn't quite at the same intensity. And then do something with quality of the event. And like so if we were looking at the West Side, that's your your max effort, your dynamic of your repetition effort. If you're looking at sprinting, it was like an acceleration day, a max V day, an endurance day. If you were looking at like soccer, for instance, on a pitch, it might be three three versus three day with lots of accelerations, decelerations. It might be more 10 v 10 where there's more actual you're opening up and you're sprinting longer distance, like in terms of the physical demands of those games, you know what I mean? And then it might yeah. be more of a technical day then like so it was kind of like this common theme you were seeing with all of them. And then when I was talking to Alan, I was like, the more and more I, I think about this stuff, the more I think Westside as a system is actually better for athletes with their GPP than it is actually for powerlifters. Because people, people, <laughs> people were thinking that Westside's a powerlifting thing. And I was like, Louis, if you talk to Louis, Louis like, no, no, Westside is a, is a training system. Like he was saying it's across the board. Now, even in that, I don't think that even what, I, like, again, I wasn't in Louis's mind, of course, but I even sort of think my thing that that is slightly different to Louis even, you know, like I've seen it more globally of these common threads between like, you know, right, these, these systems seem to have like a maximal effort or a super maximal effort with whatever domain it is, then like a, a sort of enduring effort and then a quality effort. Uh, and I was like, the kind of system there of that seems to be a common thread among like these very successful systems or very respected authors. Like, um, and I was kind of saying to Alan, like, this seems to make sense from like a, like, because even with, say, at Altus, you know, if it was an acceleration, you notice too, like, so an acceleration day, they generally do max strength, they'd match it up that day with max strength, and if it was a uh, velocity day, they'd max up with more dynamic effort in the weight room, and if it was more enduring day, they'd do more of a work capacity type, so your repetition effort stuff, so, like, and they call it zone one, two, three with Altus, and I was like, I, I was just noticing, like, you know, th- these compliments and these trends, and you think of Ishrin and complementary training qualities and stuff, and I was like, this seems to make more sense from a global training system not just like this is for powerlifters, you know what I mean? So that was, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you want to add that. That was something me and Alan really spoke about, but that's almost nine years ago now. But Yeah. Well, especially when you change the application to it, right? When you add in sprints or throws or some of those things, instead of just the dynamic effort stuff, you know, like, like if you look at, if you break down Charles's programs, there was all like, there was a max, a max effort component. Now, some of the West side people would say anything above two or three doesn't count as max effort, but you know, if it's a five RM and it's five reps, that's to me, that's max effort. It's max effort for whatever I'm doing. So there, you know, there's always that like maximal component. And then Charles's speed work was more on the Olympic side. Cause that was what he got from, you know, from the, I guess the Eastern block uh, and, and even some of the Soviets too. So they're like, all those programs have those components, you know, and, or at least all the successful ones do. And it's the same thing with Charlie Francis, right? The more sprinting you do, the less, uh, the, the, the more opposite your weightlifting qualities are, right? Like everybody has some degree of that. And it's just about finding the right combination for that sport and that individual. Yeah. Great. So finally, finally, we'll get into the main topic here. That was, but that was, <laughs> that was all great stuff. God, we could talk all, we could talk a long time. So, okay. 
client walks into you or you're working with a with a a, a a team or a group or an organization so and you can go anywhere you want with this but so someone comes into you take us through that now so what is your system what is your model so if i was coming to you what's the assessment process and then how do you program and obviously there's gonna be context around that with like time availability and um, and then how do you monitor my progress as we work together? So kind of assessment programming and, and how do you monitor that? You can take it away. So obviously I always start with an assessment. What I'll do is uh, a few like key things with, with essentially everybody, uh, the body fat assessment, which we'll use like the biosignature model, um, this, the skin fold test, and then a, uh, a, like, I guess a biomechanical type of assessment, which helps with muscular imbalances, um, mobility and you know essentially it it helps you figure out what exercises to program what exercises not to program right like if you're doing one of the tests and the athlete can't fully supinate that's going to rule out supinated grip rows barbell curls like a lot of supinated barbell work right it's going to rule that out and we're going to try to fix it so you go that the body fat assessment and the um the the neurotransmitter test so the braverman test is is a big one so then you, you take all of that information and then with all of that, you can start to, you know, organize thoughts around what this program should look like. And then you go to now, how many days do I actually have them? Right. Cause like we talked about with my, my MMA guys, like I had them two twice a week uh, in the weight room and that was it. And so a twice a week program is going to look different than three times a week, four times a week, six out of seven days. So all of those things are going to look really different. And, you know, sometimes people tell you, I can train Monday through Sunday, like, all right, well, we don't need to do that, but you know, so so that's the main uh, idea. And those things give us boxes, right? And then, I mean, you can layer for for athletes who don't have, or clients who don't have a competition period and a general preparation period where we're, where it doesn't matter what time of year it is, we need to be ready to compete by, you know, X. The seasonal model is what I've really started doing a lot of now because most of my clients I have for at least 12 months. Uh, most of them I have, I've had 10 to 12 years. So those are the people I can start segueing into, all right, we're going to train this way in the wintertime to match food availability, you know, more fat loss or whatever, right? Because if you want to try to get big when you can't eat carbs, it's easier to get big when you can eat carbs. So, you know, you can, you can interject those models and then you, you have all of these, these things where the, you know, if you're looking at the neurotransmitter test and the intensity spectrums, right, the, the more you lean towards the dopamine side, the lower your reps are going to be, the more explosive, the more, uh, the rate of exercise exchange is going to be feel faster because you're always training close to that red line RPM. And then as you move down the, down the line, you get, you know, the, the strong guy, who's a slow starter, the strong guy, who's a quick starter, then the person who's a little bit more elastic, more explosive then the person who needs a little bit more variety, they have to do a little bit of like everything works, nothing works for forever. And then you start to get into more of the feel and the, the hypertrophy type of stuff. So slower tempos and all that. So all of that stuff starts to give you the boxes then of where essentially telling you what the athlete needs, uh, well, where they are, what they need, and then what they should respond best to. Um, because, you know, you, it's an, like it's a, a seesaw of, all right, this is what they need to be good at their sport, but this is also how they best respond. So, you know, if it's hard to make a, slow starter like slow strength guy elastic it's a little bit easier to make the elastic guy a little stronger so if you spend too much time trying to take that guy who's just a slow starter and try to make him elastic with elastic movements he's probably actually going to get a little weaker 
or at least not as strong as he could be. And then if you look at it where if I just take that guy and get him really strong with movements that can be accelerated, right? Like pin presses accelerate through accommodating resistance and those types of things, you will develop enough strength at high rates of speed where that slow, slow guy has now become a bit more elastic without trying to train the elasticity in him because he's just going to get weaker. And then it's the same sort of, you know, flip-flop with the, the guy who's a bit more elastic. You can make him, you know, you can develop that slow strength or that starting strength type of quality and he'll be, but he needs, you need to foster that elastic strength. So that those types of things really help. And that's one of those things, you know, I was saying earlier where everything works, uh, but it's how fast can something work. And when you have all of, you know, all that information, or especially like if you, um, you know, press behind the neck, for example, with MMA guys was one of the the fastest ways to strengthen external rotator strength, to strengthen the shoulder girdle and all that stuff. However, what you run into is that 99% of them will fail the test because they're all so immobile from, you know, anterior punching and, and all that stuff. So you, you have to develop the ability to, to deserve to do the exercise. So, you know, you, you start to get that hierarchy there. And then once you get into how many days a week, that's where you can really, really change. Cause you know, if you're training every other day or, or, all right, I got three days a week. Well, now we're looking at, or, or two days a week with the MMA guys, that two to three day window. Now you're looking at probably total body sessions every day. Cause we got to get, we got to get these qualities in. And that means, well, if we're doing total body sessions that, you know, you, it's going to be very difficult to do like a max effort, dynamic effort type of setup, depending on what their sport looks like. So that's where you, you got to get creative to figure out how to, how to stack up their program. So then you look at the, all the testing that you've done with the neurotransmitter stuff. Like, all right, I got three days. This guy needs to be on this side of the spectrum. So we're going to concentrate on that. And maybe we'll use Olympic lifting for the slow starter and jumping and throwing and and some of that kind of stuff a little bit more than Olympic lifting for that elastic person because they can tap into the stretch reflex a little bit more, you know, counter movement jumps and all that stuff to to facilitate it. So I mean, we can get into the specifics of, of any of that you want, but that's, you know, the, the, once you get there, right, because once you get to the how many days a week how, and then how long do I have even, that's where you can go, you know, just a million different routes. And, the, and those, that's really fun with programming, right? Because there's I don't personally enjoy doing the omni contraction type of methodology, but if I, if I have an athlete, especially a fairly beginner athlete with a, with a low training age, so like my high school kids, for example, like you, if, if I've got them three days a week, if I'm lucky enough to get them three days a week, the omni contraction method is super, super, super productive for that, right? Because your, your, your exercise variety is very low, or at least it should be if you're doing it, you know, proper and then you're you're building each one of those qualities. You're building eccentric strength. You're building concentric strength. You're building isometric strength. And then you know if you if you can dial it in correctly, you can, on those days you can layer in your your strength speed work where it's appropriate. Your speed strength work where it's appropriate on the like the concentric days or you know any of that stuff where we can really start to layer in those. Whereas if I had a guy, you know, four days a week, or or if I could put them on any structure that I that I wanted, I probably wouldn't use the omni contraction method very much but that three days a week model i found that to be super effective and then you know you're going to look at the the two day a week model for an athlete you're going to try to develop strength maintain strength and then you that's where you really have to usually if you're training them twice a week they're in their they're in their sport a lot so that becomes another challenge is like well what are the demands of my sport because that's going to influence my program and my program is has to change then when the sport demands change or when the sport program changes so it's then you're looking at a little bit less long-term forecasting and programming because you're going to be 
to some degree relegated to the whims of what that coach is doing, who doesn't give a shit what you're doing. You know, so it's like, that's where that West side system comes in handy where, all right, I'm, we're going to do a, we're going to do a, a strength lift in this rep range might be single, might be a triple or whatever. We'll probably do that with a few total body type of exercises. So right away, you know, you're not going to do true, like one RM max effort. If I, if I've got to do three exercises, we may do two to three sets of five on a, a push, a pull and a posterior chain or something. Right. And then the next day we'll try to do some sort of dynamic work with that or right. There's a million different options and getting into the the details is where the art of coaching comes in, right? Because there's no good playbook for, for a lot of those scenarios, you know, like, all right, here's optimal. That's usually what's in the textbook. And well, how do I, now, how do I find optimal from, from that when I got two days a week? Just to give more context, what exactly do you mean by the, the Omni contraction? Uh, all right. So Omni contraction is, I don't know who started it. I think that's probably a bit up in the air. I probably was Cal Dietz, I would say, um, with triphasic. I think that's probably where it started. Um, Cause you know, so, so triphasic, right. He would do a phase of eccentric phase of uh, isometric and then a phase of concentric. And that would sequence really well. So the Omni contraction would start with, you would have a day where you would focus on eccentric exercises. And that doesn't mean 20 second eccentrics, right? That's four to six second eccentrics compared to two to three, right? Which is virtually it's controlled, but it's not really an eccentric. So you'd have one day where you're focused on that. And then one day where you're focused on more concentric work. So, you know, you might move from a back squat with a four second eccentric to a, an inertia squat, nipple high, you know, something like that, right. Or sled drag or any of those types of things, something with low to minimal eccentric loading and then isometric work of different kinds, isometric, you know, overcoming isometrics, um, pauses in, in the middle of the lifts, depending on where that person's at. And, you know, and even with stuff like that, that the neurotransmitter test I find is really helpful for stuff like that too, where, where you're trying to identify what your concentric work should be, what your eccentric work should be and and what these guys actually need. So you, you, the other advantage to the, the Omni contraction system for, for lifters, who don't have a ton of experience is if I do back squats for, you know, five by five, right. For five second eccentrics on day one. And then I do some other type of concentric back squat, maybe for speed strength, whatever. Uh, on one day, I'm still back squatting. And then if I do um, some type of isometric squat pattern on the other day, you know, it's, that's three solid days of squatting, which really ramps up performance, you know? So uh, otherwise, if you, you know, if you had an upper day, a lower day and either alternated, you know, while that's usually fine for body comp and for gen pop and all that stuff, like, well, if, you know, if, if it's the the week where my athlete's doing one lower session and two upper, like that's not as productive as three um, three lower sessions done, you know, in a row. And actually, I do remember where it started. It started with um, I would say John John Pierre uh, with, uh, with Werner Gunther. That's the first guy that really did it. So so back in the '80s was was where I think what made it popular with that style. And you know, so you look at those workouts, right? It's a, a squat and a press usually with a few accessories then the next day he's doing sprints and sport skill. And then there's uh, the the concentric day, which was usually an Olympic lifting variation of some sort for, for sport. And then you got the next day where you're back to sports skills, sprints, throws. And then you got the next day, which virtually the same as, uh, as Monday. So there was that, that dynamic of two days a week, we're either doing isometrics or all the above on, you know, I think the peaking phase was like isometrics, speed work, um, 
eccentric hooks, all that stuff. So I, yeah, that's where it started. Cool. And uh, just with regards to like testing performance quality. So I know you, you spoke about like body comp and the, the Braverman test and some sort of movement assessment stuff. Um, with regards to then, obviously we're talking about someone who's a bit more qualified with regards to their training age, but are, are you, are you specifically testing then some physical qualities? Like, are you, are you doing something specific to look at strength quality, power quality, speed quality? You know, you can't retest agility because it's it's in response to a stimulus, but a change of direction, if you like, <laughs> then. Um, and 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 I and I know even like, and I know some of the conversations from some people within within the sort of um physical preparation field. So like Milad and Janovic now. And, you get a lot of people like, you know, like people are kind of saying, do biomarker qualities really exist? You know, the way we put them in these nice isolated buckets. And in reality, they don't like, because when you're sprinting, people go, oh, that's speed. It's like, well, there's strength involved in that and there's power involved in that. It's just that they're they're on a different place in the spectrum with all those biomarker qualities. But so like, I don't, you know, I'm giving that just so people know where I'm coming from too. But like, <laughs> are, are you still kind of looking to try and get a sort of an idea or a window into where someone's, if you like, Really, what we're talking about is force. That's what we're talking about. It's just force at different velocities. So we're talking about kind of force at slow velocity, force at a slightly higher velocity, and then force at very high velocities, but it's got like low load on it. So you know, just that whole force velocity, the, the force velocity curve. Essentially, what I'm talking about. Are you looking looking at tests across that? So strength, power, speed. Yeah. So there's like a, a multitude of things you can look at with your, with your testing, right? So if I, if I have an athlete that comes in and they're off season and we've got six to 12 weeks or whatever, and they're like, all right, I've got this test or whatever. My vertical jumps horrible. I need to train. And like, I need like my goal with you is vertical jump. So that's going to be a different, a different subset of, of tests and qualities where if we're, if we're hyper-focused on that or um, like 225, for example, and, and, or NFL combine is a, a great, or pro day, right? Those are, those are really good examples. Cause then if you're looking at that, you can, you have to figure out there where like most people would either the, the strength is all that matters. Guys would be like, well, if long as their one RM goes up on their two twenty they they're probably going to do more reps. That's mostly true, but you know, like somebody like me, I need the repetition work in addition to the max strength work. Cause my, you know, you get, you get a guy's like lactic acid buffering stuff, uh, their, their, if their abilities to do that are poor, their maximal strength is going to be hampered by their ability to do repeated efforts, you know? So you can't like the, it, those are the same strength coaches who are like, ah, sprint work doesn't matter for a sprinter. Like, well, you only say that because you don't know what you're doing when you do their sprint work, you know, <laughs> like I coach track. So like I would do some of my dynamic effort stuff or my, um, my sprint speed strength, my reactive strength, some of that stuff would be like 10 meter starts. And then we would do, you know, an a, a Olympic lift, which is slower and then a squat or something like that, that's slower, you know, and we would get good qualities mixed in or, or sprints on one day, squats, Olympic lifts on the next day. Like we'd get the balance of qualities because I could teach somebody to sprint. So, you know, you can, you got a lot of coaches and one of the places I used to work would test starts and they would, ruin technique just trying to show them how to test a start so that's part of the, the issue is like if you don't know how to like actually get someone better at that quality like you probably don't need to test their 10 meter start you know or or at least test it and just don't say anything um because so you can look at that you can look at their their vertical their broad jump looking at those combine tests so if that's if that's what i'm doing then i'm going to test 
basically going to do the combine or the pro day tests as my assessment somewhat frequently, you know, every few weeks, because I need to see if what we're doing is actually transferring. Right. And you'll get some coaches who won't, um, you won't go through that. Like they'll just, your Jeep, how do you know your GPP works actually helping your SPP if you never actually assess any of that stuff? And some coaches will go through that and, and you like, you'll look at programs where their, their GPP is obviously not, there's, this doesn't match up with their destination, you know? So like, it's not helping anything. So why, what are you doing? So you look at that and then you can look at like some of their max strength markers so that there is a, there's a performance tests for, for especially for athletes with gen pop, unless they just like, oh, I want to get my bench up to X, Y, Z. All right, we'll, we'll test your bench now. We'll test it later. But for Gen Pop, I don't usually do any sort of like performance markers unless that's a specific goal. Um, but with athletes, right, you have to look at you look at that force time curve. Like, well, what do we need to test to see? And I mean, you can even look at predictors. So I, you know, I figured out what the the good predictors were for my my skeleton athlete with Team Canada. So I knew we needed to get this lift to here, this lift to here, this lift to here, in order to get the general. And that was a combination of uh, like front squats, split squats chin up strength because it helps on their start versus and um, uh, a strength speed lift and a speed strength lift, right? I needed to get those to certain places for him. Uh, one, because I knew what he had done previously didn't transfer and, and exercises he got really strong at no performance improved on the track. And looking at the same thing with, I have a pole vaulter now that we're trying to get on, on team USA working to qualify. And it's the same sort of thing. Like here's our, eh, the other thing that gets murky with a lot of the stuff is injuries, right? Like I, I have this elaborate amount of testing exercises and strength ratios for the pole vaulter. She's got a bad hip, so she can't do anything. Like every time she goes back to vault, her hip gets jacked up. So we've got to spend, you know, we're going to spend most of our time split squatting and RDLing and not even really working on performance improvement because she doesn't deserve to do power cleans and snatches and all the performance stuff yet. Like we got to get well first. So, you know, you can, can regressively look at this stuff too like where where i'm at with my pole vaulter now is i need her to be able to front squat you know this much to what she used to be able to back squat and i we got a pretty good idea based on 20 years of of history with those numbers that now we should be able to back squat all right now you can back squat this now you should be able to power snatch and once once the those baseline qualities are in line you can start to develop the fancier stuff and then that'll be where your, your tests will change, you know? So there's like, we know what the, the vertical jump tests should be in terms of in the weight room, uh, like an incline press, a, a clean grip power snatch really transfers because it's very similar motions. So you get some of those things up and your, your, your testing can change quite a bit based on, on what your desired outcome is. And, and it's on you really to, to know what will help your athlete transfer, right? Cause there's a lot of literature that, all right, this, like chin-ups should help the um, the start for the bobsleigh and all that stuff because there's a lot of lat work in there. And that's sort of time-tested with, with Charles and all the skating and, and ice winter sports that he did. But also we know that based on all that stuff now that the, the chin-up to bench press ratios don't really predict or facilitate bench press performance. The curls do, like the biceps curls do. You know, So that's one of those where like, all right, yeah, you should, you're benching 100 kilos. You should be able to chin-up this. But a lot of guys will look at those ratios and see that as, well, if I can chin up this, this is what I should be benching. Like, there's no real, there's no transfer correlation to that. And I feel like the biceps curl and your bench is weak and your biceps curl is out of 
balance, so to speak, in those ratios, and you get your curl up, your bench press should follow, or your press behind the neck up, your bench press should follow. So it's there's a lot of art into knowing what to test more so than like one of the things that that's really bugged me the last like 10 years, one of the places I worked is that they became hyper-focused on testing and less on what the training program needs to be to improve the tests. You know, like you're, you're happy with a, a very minimal improvement because you're testing all the time and you're not training enough to get a test. Whereas if you test once every six to 12 weeks, you're going to see bigger improvements because your training program is facilitating the improvements in the test. And you're not just testing every training program. Uh, and with your tests and uh, like, this is something I picked up from Dan Faf is that, you know, he was like, if you look sort of maybe at, at classical literature, they would like have this, you know, pre-testing day and then your training program and then like a retest day. And he was like, it just never worked out like that with me. He's like, we do a pre-test and it would be kind of, you know, everyone's kind of like sore and they're not ready to test because they're kind of out of shape. He's like, is that really worthwhile data? And then he's like, then we train for a while and then we'd have a testing day and everyone knew it was a testing day. So everyone's kind of nervous and everyone do shit. So then he's like, then I just started doing it while we were in the training program and not letting them know, you know? So like he, he would just like intentionally have a program like, okay, week four, after we've done like three weeks of just general stuff together, we're doing a test, but they don't really know. We're just going to like put it in the program. Do you know what I mean? And then, mm-hmm. then we'll retest it again. Six weeks down the line, we're in like block B here, but they won't know it's a retest day. They'll just think it's Tuesday. You know, so like, what are your thoughts on that then? I, there's a lot of value in that. And and that was one of the things I got from Charles is that your, I remember when I first started working with him, he like left me a message and he was like, this is, you know, we're going to do X, Y, and Z for the first three weeks. And this is sort of a testing block. And then he said, ah, every block's a testing block, but you know what I mean? You know, which like, which is true, right? If, I, if I'm looking at your, if I'm tracking your numbers and we go from, you know, this performance to a different exercise and those things don't line up, right? Because you should know. So one of, like, one of the things I always use that I got from Louie when I did West Side so successfully for my own bench was the the floor press corresponded perfectly to, I think is 80, 84, 86% of my bench because of how I benched, right? I was a shoulder width bencher, mostly, you know, mostly triceps bencher rather than chest. So for me, that was my testing exercise for my bench press. So I would put and, and this is how I, I train for like uh, the combine test with the bench press, right? Is your, if you're trained, if they need to, imp- if the biggest limiting factor for them is their maximal strength on the press, then your, your flat bench press or your most specific press building exercises are going to fall in the intensification phases because you're trying to build the strength quality in the motor pattern, right? Whereas you can then use your accumulation phases to build endurance in the muscle group to do the, um, to get more repetition, right? So you're, so you're able to pull both up at the same time. So for me, that was how I would test my bench press progress is every so often I would throw in the floor press, you know, sequentially in that program to some variation or the other, right? You don't do the same lift every four weeks, but if you go from a floor press for five by five, uh, six weeks later in the next intensification block or whatever it is to a, a floor press with a pause or a floor press with a different tempo or floor press with chains or different repetitions, you should be able to then intelligently look at your data and say that floor, the first floor press was, or the second floor press was 15% stronger than the first floor press. So as you start to do your programming, you, you should be looking long-term enough to sequentially order your exercises from phase to phase to phase, to be able to analyze, okay, 
this performance is linearly increasing to the fact where when I finish my program, we should be strong enough at my peaking exercises that those, the performance in the peaking exercise then facilitates the optimal performance in the testing exercise or, or in your sport. And that's, like, that's when we get so caught up in testing, the program design skill is sort of falling to the wayside, I think, with a lot of the stuff, because it, it, there's certainly elegance in simplicity, but the basic fact of knowing how to order your primary exercise to get to an, an end result is like, it's not a common skill anymore. And I think that's, you know, we're <clears throat> testing them without them knowing their test. Like, this is just a part of your program, you know, like um, one of the things I did with Charles was just repeated a particular phase, uh, I think at the end of the first year. We just repeated uh, one week of the very first training phase I did with him. You know, it's like, all right, we're just going to do this this week, see where you're at. And, you know, everything was through the roof. And that was a great one-year marker. And you can do that with, you know, every other phase, essentially, if you're sequencing your exercises properly, right? You know, your your primary exercise in phase one should move down the list in the in the training program when you get to phase three. And it's because more complex exercises should be taking over. But if you're just throwing random exercises in that don't correspond to each other in any way, there's no way to assess that without doing some sort of actual testing day. And that that's where the, the beauty of really well-written programs, you know, that the beauty is there and in, in, in knowing that I don't need to test you every three to six weeks because I'm analyzing your data in a thoughtful manner and organizing your program where, if this doesn't go up, I know something needs to change in your program because that is your test. Like every training session is your test, no matter what it is. <clears throat> and the, the coaches don't analyze the data as much because they're so worried about the testing data. Yeah. Um, and then just regards to load management, monitoring, like what are you doing? Like, do you do, do you do anything with regards to like, a, you know, like or rings or whoop bands or HRV or you know, and then do you and even with load management are you tracking like volumes like you know the old classical weightlifting programs where they calculate your volumes weekly and monthly and stuff like that so like so load load management and, and monitoring and, and sort of recovery and what are your thoughts in a deloads i know there's a big thing now deloads are bollocks you know like, you know like as in like people are like yeah you can, why would you take week four off all the time you know just fucking you know you gotta go by your feel and what if you feel great in week four and you know sort of and other people are like, well, a deload is more proactive than reactive because some people are like, well, if I feel great week four, it's like, yeah, but the other thing, if it, like, let's say you are going on a two on one off or a three on one off and some people go, yeah, but if I feel great on that fourth week, why not go for it? And some rebuttals that have been, well, you could do something a week four that's going to fuck up week five then, do you know what I mean? Or fuck up week six because of, yeah. you know, you weren't meant to go. But it's again, and the argument that people, the argument for people who aren't really into predetermined deloads is because we're such dynamic organisms. You know, it's like, what if you wake up on competition day and you're in the red? It's like, you got to still perform, like, you know. So I know there's there's debates going back and forth, you know. And, you know, sort of the, the people who would retract on that then would say, okay, right, you could be red in competition day, but it's like, we're not in competition, we're in preparation phase. And, like, so, like, if we're red, we're red, but perform anyway because the human body's robust or it's not that fragile, we, we'll be able to do it. But it's like, just because you can perform on red day doesn't mean you should do that in your training loads, you know. So the <laughs> conversations go back and forth. But yeah, where are you with like load management and like deloads and stuff like that? So you can be, you should be super, you know, analytical with all that stuff. Right? I don't like to use technology like the auras or any of that stuff, um, you know, for all the circadian reasons. 
And, you know, really it's like, those are good tools. You know, there's nothing wrong with the actual tool and the data they give you, but still like you, you should be able to somewhat go by the personality of your athlete when they walk in, right? You can use things like grip strength or one of the easiest things like the, the dynamometers, I think are one of the most classical things that we use. Um, you know, and, and even when Olympic lifts or any of those types of things or jumps are part of your program, you'll know the first set of the program, whether or not that athlete needs to deload or we need to push or, you know, whatever it is, right? Because sometimes it's just, you need to sequence your warm up properly to, to channel the athlete. You know, like I know when I would do, when I was doing West side style stuff on my, my eight sets of three dynamic, it would set four to five would be my first like rocket set. You know, it would take me a few sets now. So knowing what I know now, I would warm up differently. So I'd get eight better sets, you know, um, and the neurotransmitter stuff, I think for me has been the most useful for that because it helps me figure out how and where to deload based on how I'm programming. So if you look at, if we go to a West side, for example, right there, they not a real planned deload for the most part, unless a competition is showing up because the exercises change every week, which is a bit of a deload. Because if you go from, you know, a floor press with five chains on each side to a 60 degree incline press from a set of pins that is a bit of a deload in and of itself, right? So when you're, you know, when you sequence your exercises, that should be happening. If you go from incline to flat to decline, when you roll back from decline to incline, that's a deload. You know, you're still training hard, but you're definitely deloaded because the loads and the repetitions you program are going to be vastly different. So that like, that's one way where if you know how your athlete responds, right? Like the, the West side kind of athlete or that dopamine, highly dopamine dominant athlete, thrives on weight on the bar thrives on intensity right so that but that's just one quality so the way like i'm a really good example of being um i guess a bit bipolar as far as the neurotransmitter test goes right i was I'm dopamine dominant and gaba dominant but i'm also deficient in both of them which means i the the gaba deficiency basically means i can't recover from the style of training that i thrive on the most so for me a programmed deload from like weekly, right? So I would go six sets, five sets, two sets. So I would deload every third week. And prior to, to doing that, I either did, you know, like a seven week linear traditional, you know, five sets of 10, 10, 10, 8, 8, 8, 10, 8, 6, 6, 6, you know, that kind of crap, which, you know, I did that for a decade. Um, but prior to that, I didn't, you know, I, I would do four weeks with no real deload. And, and that fourth week for me was always the worst. I hate a half the time. I didn't do all of it because I just hated it. I did not function good on that fourth week. And then when I started doing stuff with Charles, I didn't have a, one, I didn't have a fourth week and two, you know, only doing two sets at maximal effort, whatever the program was, is a deload, you know, and I felt great. My performance on week three was always hands down better than my performance on week one uh, of, of that program. I do end up doing more repetitions with a heavier weight than I did the first week of the program. Because you only got to do it twice. It was great. And, and I would feel incredible that week. So that's a good recharge. And then you get some of the other dynamics in the neurotransmitters that help help you identify like, all right, this guy needs a higher intensity, but the data I'm looking at tells me he can't recover from that. So how do I, how do I give him intensity, but help him recover as you take away volume gradually. Right. And then you've got the, the speed person who, you know, can unload and then change programs can unload and then shows you know, five sets, four sets, change, five sets, four sets, change, that sort of thing. And that change, because they're not at, at the same height of intensity as the, 
the dopamine type person or, or my type of like profile, that frequent change is enough to where they don't need a big deload. Then as you move farther down the line, you may need to deload on the third week and then repeat the program. You may go six weeks or you know three weeks escalate volume, unload volume, change program. So there's, you know, with because with Charles's philosophy, there was no, there wasn't a, there's not a real reps and reserve component. There's not a, you know, none of that stuff is every set was go hard unless otherwise instructed. And sometimes you are instructed to do so Olympic lifting and, you know, some of that stuff. But by and large, you know, five reps means five, don't be able to do six. And that's the the knowing when and how to deload when you program that way, I think is super important. And that I, that's where a lot of this stuff gets murky is like, you can't listen to, you know, this guy over here and his thoughts on deloading. If you're over here and you program successfully this way, you're going to need, need to deload differently. And like, that's none of this, you know, like all this getting into the Geronda stuff is a really good example. People say you can't put on muscle mass without carbohydrate. Well, yeah, you can, if you, you take them away and you time them properly, but if you train in a way that facilitates muscle gain in the absence of carbohydrates, you can get bigger. It's been done and it's been done really successfully, but you can't train like Milo Sharshev and try to eat like Vince Gironda, right? That's just going to be a disaster. And, and so that's what I think the, the deloading conversation is very similar to that, you know, relative intensity in a Poliquin style program was always, you know, almost hundred percent. So you're going to need to deload differently. But if, you, if you've always got, you know, if you're doing five by five with four reps in reserve for strength, speed or speed strength, then your deload may be very different or, or not even need one at all. You know? So it's, uh, I think, and there's nothing wrong with either of those options if it works the best for that particular person, right? That's another thing. What I love about Charles is that he would take the Bruce Lee approach, right? Of like, all right, this works great for this kind of person. So that's how they're going to train. This works really good for that kind of person. So that's how they're going to train. And then you apply your training principles of, you know, effort and tempo and range of motion and all that stuff to that person and what works the best for them. And everybody doesn't need to deload on the third session or the sixth session or the, you know, whatever, how you train them, how you train that person for that particular goal even may change how they deload over the course of a year. They may not deload the same the entire year based on how their, their programming works. And being flexible and and smart enough to know when to deload somebody when it's not part of the plan either. You know, I, I use one of my my hardest working football players. We were training him for pro day. And we started um, as a, like a Hepburn style, eight sets of three, as hard as you can, you know, type of thing on, on compound lifts. <clears throat> he comes in on Monday, crushes it. And this is like an outgoing kid, you know, always walks in with a smile, happy, and he comes in on on day two with his you know his hood his hoods on his heads down he's got the sniffles, not having a good time. And we start warming up and it's just not right. Bar speed's not moving well. You know he's he's it's not good. So we kill the session. Ten minutes in, like done. Go home. You're going to do X, Y, and Z to recover. Glutamine, you know, a few other things. Come back in on Friday. Let's see how you feel. Comes back in on Friday. You know, same as Monday. So we you know we take three days off and took no steps backwards, didn't even really take a step sideways. We just stopped where we were and then were able to move forward. Whereas you get like some of these, you know, especially some of the polypin lineage will, will be so rigid on, this is my program, you know, like Tuesday, we got to do this and they'll train like trash. And then you'll end up taking two or three steps back and then you can't really recover from that. Whereas if you just put the brakes on, let them recover from something they obviously didn't recover from, you know, and it's because we get into the, the 
I think the issue where we're too scared to send a client home or, you know, like, yeah. So like, I didn't charge the kid for that session. Like, you know, it's not his fault. Like I'm going to manage that. And this is what I need to do as his coach. He's going to go home and we're not getting billed for this session because we didn't do anything. It's like, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Or, you know, you can charge him for the session if you want or whatever, but and there's other ways to work around that too. If you're, if you, when you don't have the confidence to send them home, it's all right, well, let's, let's do some, are you here? We're going to train You get your money's worth. We'll do some calves. We'll do some abs, maybe a little bit of grip work, stuff that you can do with effort that won't floor you, you know, depending on how, how messed up you are. But once I finally had the guts to send guys home and make them come back a few days later, like every single time they come back, they perform better than they did the last time. You know, and when you don't send them home, they get worse and sometimes don't even come back to where they were before they got, they got worse. So I think that's a, a super important component that a lot of the, you know, some of the younger guys are either too rigid, you know, like uh, one of the things with some of the Poliquin guys are planning for like a year, like, you know, here there's a year long sets and reps that we're going to, there's our program and then they won't change it. Like, that's fine. If you want to do that, that's a decent idea to have that concept in your head of where you want to start, and where you want to finish. But, you know, five weeks in, somebody has a really bad day at work and now they've got ulcers and have to take three weeks off for their stomach surgeries. Well, you can't, you can't just drop them into where they would be. Like you've got to, you've got to change that. And the, the adaptability is, is like the art, you know, the art of coaching, I think is in terms of programming is not where it should be for most people. Big time. And then you kind of mentioned a few things there with that athlete that came in and you were saying glutamate, um, or glutamine, glutamate. Where's it? Glutamate. Glutamine. Glutamine. Yeah. Glutamine. Glutamine. Just making sure I got that right. Definitely not glutamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which, no, which segues nicely then into like nutrition. And so, obviously, we spoke about the physical aspect of preparing people for whatever their goal is. Um, but then nutritionally too, and on a lifestyle aspect, maybe to bleed over into light and sleep as well. You know, is there is there an assessment piece there as well? And like, sort of, I suppose, like then the intervention part is obviously going to be individual, I suppose, because everyone is very unique on that end of things as well. But when you're working with a client too, we've just gone through the whole sort of training branch of it with the nutritional lifestyle piece. Are you assessing here as well? And, and if you are, like, what do you do? Is it like more questionnaire stuff? Do you do bloods? Or, I mean, are bloods only sort of more like last resort if someone's really struggling? Is it kind of just like more sort of, well, if they, you know, are they meeting even basic um lifestyle guidelines to begin with like just sleep and water nutrition and then if they are doing that and they're still having issues maybe we go down bloods and that type of stuff so where are you on that aspect of things so i'll use the skin fold test sometimes weekly uh depending on you know what what how that athlete's feeling or or what our particular objectives are right because sometimes it's it's important to make sure they're not getting too lean for whatever their position is you know uh, andre i don't know if you ever heard him tell the story like he got a guy you know, stronger and everything, but he, he lost so much body fat. He, they actually dropped his contract, you know, for, for American football. So, you know, that like, that's a, that's an important component. Whereas like, you can't, you know, if you're training alignment, like, Oh, you know, we would think like our leaner is better, lighter is faster and all that stuff. But if their coach wants them to weigh 305 pounds and you drop 6% body fat and they show up at 292, that's, not necessarily going to be good for them as a professional. So, you know, that like that's an extreme example, but you know, that hopefully that concept makes sense. Like you, you need to make sure, well, if our, if our goal is to get leaner, 
then we need to make sure we're getting leaner. And well, how am I going to assess that with skin folds? So if my goal is to maintain body weight, but drop body fat, then I'm, I'm looking at that too. So I think that's a super useful component where, because, you know, with blood, you, you can't do it with a high degree of frequency, you know, at the, let's say at the most every six weeks. So really you're, you're doing it at the beginning of a program. And like, if you're lucky enough to get a kid for 12 full weeks or a, you know, a competitor or something like that, then you do it at the end to see where you're at and what adjustments you might need to make. So the skin folds can be a very good proxy for a lot of that stuff. Cause they can, they can lead you one way or the other. You know, if you're, oh, your skin folds did this, this is probably happening in your blood. Like let's maybe go get these four or five things tested, you know, this week or a finger prick for, you know, cause now that's so common where you can test your omega threes with a finger prick or whatever. You know, which are which are easy, you know, and and not minimally invasive because you like you don't want seven vials of blood drawn every three to four weeks just for your progress. Like you should be a good enough coach to not need that. Um, so so that's where we'll look with with a lot of the food adjustments because I, I you can use this a few of the skin fold sites to help with macro um, prescription is not a great word, but with macro planning. You know, if your your carbohydrate sites are going up at you know, a hundred grams of carbs, like, all right, we need to maybe let's dial that back and add some fat, you know, like, so you, so you can use that to see like, well, where they're, where they're gaining weight can be a decent indicator of what your nutritional changes need to be. And, you know, I know there's a, um, my buddy, Tim will use, um, I think he's got the iPads and they have like questionnaires for sleep and stuff for, for every session, you know, which, which I think is a great idea. If you have that technology, I don't love using the technology. So for me, it's, you know, and if you don't have the money to invest in the technology, which is not cheap, it's, it's simple questionnaires, right? You can, you can develop four or five questionnaires. Uh, and the really the dynamometer, I think is one of the easiest things you can do damn near every day to see big changes in, in that grip strength, you know, especially if you're like, oh, you know, how, cause it's a simple conversation with your, with your client or your, your kids at your training, you know, like, how'd you sleep? Like, ah, oh, I was up till midnight doing this paper, you know, slept like, crap, I'm stressed. I broke up with my girlfriend yesterday, you know, like, which are real things, right? So somebody comes in like, all right, we're supposed to do, you know, triple sets of power snatches today with a three, two, one wave load. Maybe we do pulls instead, right? You know, like, or let's test their grip strength. It's like, all right, well, they should be able to perform. So maybe we don't need to change this or, you know, whatever the case may be. So it, it's definitely something that needs to be done that I don't think enough coaches actually do and then respond to, you know, because it's one thing to, to do the questionnaire on the, on the tablet or to ask them that question or to do the dynamometer and then, you know, get one result and not do anything as a, re as a result of that. Cause I think that happens a lot too, is we go through all this stuff and like all these great things that, you know, some of these people who don't even work with actual clients will tell you to do, but you go through that stuff and you're like, all right, well, their, their grip strength is trash. All right, let's go three, two, one, you know, like you didn't change anything. So so I think it's important, like when you actually do those things to actually make adjustments to those, which is, it's not easy to do because it's all, you know, it's almost admitting you did something wrong to a certain degree, but it's, it's just being good at your job and actually looking at that. So, so uh, assessing sleep in some form or fashion. Um, so, you know, like what Cal Dietz like, likes the Omega wave. Um, if you don't think the aura rings are, um, are not bad, then you can use the aura rings to give you some of that stuff. You know, there's, there's lots of, of really good tests. Uh, one of my buddies one time who played guitar would use that for himself. You know, he was a strength coach and he would just pick up you know, when he would wake up or whatever, after he would 
before he'd go to the gym, he would just like fiddle on his, with his guitar. And if it was felt good and, and easy, he'd know it was a good, going to be a good training day. But if it was sluggish and a bit of a struggle to, you know, kind of have things flow, like, all right, maybe I'm not going to train today, or maybe I'll do something different. So there's lots of little things like that, you know, like the guitar playing thing, like that's obviously not applicable to 99% of your clients, but you know, that's something you can tell them to do, right? If you got a, if you got a kid who knows how to play or can, cause you know, even, so I, I was in a band for 15 or 20 years, right. And on a bad day, even a chord or chord changes, which are not complicated. And especially if you're a good guitar player, aren't necessarily like, they don't necessarily feel good. There's a, there's a flow to that kind of thing where you can fall into it or it, it takes work. And if it takes work, it might not be a good training day for a high skilled movement. So I did that answer with got got off on a tangent. There. No, Sorry. no, it's good. Yeah, we were just talking about monitoring and load management. Yeah, no, very, very good. Yeah, so it, it does seem to be from, from my perspective that because you've mentioned it a few times now that, and I know some people might roll their eyes and it's cliche. I know younger coaches when they hear it, they go, "Oh, they just keep talking about like the art, the art." And it's like, you know, like now, guys, these kids are all with their technology and too much science. <laughs> their emotional intelligence is terrible. But like, you're dealing with humans who are emotional beings, so you can't you can't ever get too far away from the art. You know, I think the yeah, like you, you can meet so many. You probably know this too. Like you meet so many people who, from an intellectual level. Like they're competent, they're fine, but they're not geniuses. But their emotional intelligence is off the charts. Like, and that's why they're usually very successful in their particular domain in life. You know, or they can just mm -hmm. they just have excellent, excellent people skills. They they have great self awareness of themselves and how they carry themselves in the presence of others, and they're very good at reading others. And that nearly seems to always beat the person who has poor EQ and very, 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 very high IQ. You know, usually they're the people you don't want to hang around with. It's like, great, you're, yeah. re you're, you're really intelligent, but you're an asshole. So, so yeah, so the, the, are, like the are, go ahead. No, go ahead. The, uh, the technology thing, I think is a good point. Like with the, you know, the younger coaches and the older coaches, like the, I can't tell you how many times I've encountered someone who told me they had a bad aura ring score and then felt worse because they saw the score. You know, like they woke up, they felt fine. And then, uh, you know, like this is a conversation that you can have and probably will have it with a lot of people. And, and so that's one of those things where like some the, the technology is not necessarily always a great thing. You know, like if, if you wake up with a score of 70 and feel like your score was 100, does it really matter if your score was actually 70? If you if you don't feel that, if, if that's influencing how you feel and that's a real thing. You know, so that, that's also something to be aware of with some, like, obviously like bar speed is going to be different, you know, it either feels faster or it either is fast or it isn't. But, you know, with some of the technologies, that's a component that shouldn't be overlooked. And I think oftentimes it is with, with a lot of that stuff, you know? Yeah. Like, and again, a, a lot of it, you, you mentioned a good thing there. Like that's, that's a discussion. I think that's very important to have with like a client or an athlete that is using that. Like just because you do get a score of seventy, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Because <laughs> like yeah, you know, like doesn't mean you you. It depends on the individual too. Whereas if you are that type of person who does not respond well to just like criticism in life in general, like you're there waking up and the first thing in the morning is oh you're a seventy out of a hundred. Like that's how you're perceiving that. You know I'm a seventy. I'm a piece of shit. Do you know it's yeah. kind of like that's where oh, I'm a piece of shit. Even though I feel great, this is telling me I'm not great. Do you know what I mean? Whereas you could be someone else who's more lightning and go, all right, this says I'm 70, but I feel great, so I'm going with like I feel great. So that's yeah. the conversation that you need to have with that person. Say, listen, even if you're feeling good, nothing says you're 70, like you know, it's up to you. And I'd go with the feeling, you know what I mean? Like, don't don't be letting this external source dictate your self-esteem almost, you know. 
Because mm-hmm. and you can, I've seen the same thing with bar speed, right? Where somebody's moving the bar a little too slow, <clears throat> and they get their bar speed up for the sake of good technique. You know, like, well, all right, if you're a competitive lifter, that's really bad for you. You just you just screwed up your your competitive lift for the sake of, you know, point one meters per second on something where it just or maybe if you lighten the load and keep your technique well, you know, good, you're, there's going to be a, a difference there, right? There's, there's trade-offs for some of these numbers where the coach is just chasing the, the result from the technology rather than like getting that result in a particular manner, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a bit more productive. So there's a place for, cause I, my, I said, my buddy, Tim with uh, Allegiant, Tim Karen is like the way they use their technology, I think is fantastic. Like I personally, I don't like the technology. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want the signals, the Bluetooth or any of that shit. Uh, but you know, if you're going to use it, I think that's a, there's a great way that they, they use it with testing. They use it on their, you know, every rack's got an iPad, everybody does their questionnaire and they help manage load and bar speed and all of that stuff, like right there for each person on their squat rack. And, and like, I think that's great if you, if you know how to use it and then also understand those qualities of, all right, it told me I was a 70. Well, I must suck. Or it told me I'm a 70, but I feel like a hundred. So, you know, screw that. Like, let's have a good day. Or, you know, like this, I mean, everybody's seen, like you get a group of high school guys or you know 40 year old men and you're measuring bar speed, the bar speed's going to come up in some way. Uh, or, you know, it's going to get faster. And most of the time, most of the time people don't care how it gets faster as long as it gets faster. And I, I don't think that's a good thing in long-term, yeah. especially you know, like that's not to your benefit. Yeah. Yeah. True. Uh, that, that's a big discussion that's happened before. Yeah. Like the people are chasing numbers and you know, they're just chasing quantity. It was like, uh, w- like what's the quality that's going along with that quantity? You know, you can, you can get this page of numbers back. All right. The bar moved as fast or you jumped as fast, but what did it actually look like? And then, and then, I mean, because a huge, huge area, and you, like for me personally, and I don't know if it's the same case for you, but like for me, I think we need to give this person credit. It's, it's Franz Bosch, because Bosch has been the one that's been turned around and said, listen, you guys are constantly talking about developing physical qualities, and you need to know that it's all distilled through coordination. So like, you know, his like, this is why you're getting these guys in a weight room, because like Bosch, like, like you read motor any motor literature it's like you get these guys going you have to squat to get faster it's like okay on outside of novices and people with low tra- training age like a squat is a completely different mo- movement to a sprint like they're, compl- they're your brain their brains like they don't fucking what like they're two different motor tasks and like in fairness to Bosch, he was the first one like all you guys in the strength world all you talk about is developing qualities you're like strength power speed and he's like there's a whole motor coordination behind this that you guys are completely forgetting. And then like, he was like, you're all, it, then he, you know, he's like, you're almost, you, you've gone so into that hole too. It's actually been detrimental to some people because you're fucking up their coordination patterns. Then they're going out there blowing ACLs because when their body gets into a movement that th- their body, like their, the, 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 the body does not have to co-contract around the joint at those angles, and those velocities and those moments. It's like the body's like, what the fuck do I do here? All I know is to move it really slowly with things that don't transfer here. So I just think Bosch has really enlightened us too in a lot of things as well. I, I, what, I, what I will say in that is like, again, you don't want to throw the baby out the batwater because I had a good conversation with Nick Winkman about this one time when, Bo- this was like back like 2013, like when I first kind of, in fairness, I did read reading like in 2009, but like I was like 22 and I was like, I don't really know what's going on here. It's like when you when you pick up Super Train for the first time, you're like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> yeah. And actually, yeah. I've read I, I've read Super Training twice since since uh, since obviously because you know I'm I'm in the field almost twenty years and 
you know, I have a really decent background in terms of, you know, being a practitioner in the field, but also like I have my master's, I'm used to reading research and all that. And I've been at super trained twice. And I don't know why people think it's this monument. It's not like, it's not a difficult book to read. And, and like, and this Mel rest in peace. And it is a great book in parts, but it's not a great book either. Like, like in terms of the, the, the referencing in that book is really bad. Like he's got like references in the book and you go to the back of the book and they're not there. And I'm just like, this is meant to be the Bible of like S and C and like, if this was a medical textbook, this would be like laugh at. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's not disrespect to Mel. It's still a great book, and Verkashansky still a great book. I mean, there's still parts of that that are really, really good and all, but it's just the way some people are like. I think some people that like read holds up like, do you actually read that book? Uh, yeah, and, no, and, most and, of them probably haven't. Yeah, it haven't. And, and the other thing too is, it's like because Verkashansky wrote it or Sif wrote it, it's like it has to be amazing. And like the rare parts that I'm like, I think that's bollocks. I don't think that works at all. Like, you know, somebody exercising it too. I'm like, lads hanging off poles and hanging kettlebells off for hip flexion that's going to transfer to sprint. I'm like, I just don't see that. I, I don't, just because Verkashansky said it or some Russian said it, like, you know what I mean? Like these yeah. guys, that, and, it's, and actually this actually ties in nicely to what Nick told me about Franz Bosch because the first thing, because my whole thing was like, I was like, Nick, like you're big in the Franz Bosch, so like what's your sort of, like he's saying, like you know, heavy strength works a bit detrimental, and we need to do more coordination stuff. And then the first thing he said to me was like, "Robbie, just so you know, before we get into this, Franz Bosch is a human being." And I was like, "Okay." And he goes, "So he could be wrong." And I was like, <laughs> "All right," because like next thing was like, humans have biases and are, have fallacies and can be incorrect. So it's like Verkashansky. Don't be wrong, Verkashansky, brilliant literature out there. I there's some stuff he wrote, and see, no doubt the things I like are things that I have a bias towards. So I'm like, yeah, I, I agree with that. It's like you could read the Bible and say I like that part, but I don't like the slavery part. You know, like you know the <laughs> the, the part about treating people nice. I'll take that. But so you can have a bit of that too. But I just remember where Franz Bosch Nick saying that too. He's like, listen, he's a human, no different to me or you. So he's also going to have biases. There's things he's going to push. There's things he's going to be. He's going to be potentially wrong about now that he thinks he's right on. But Nick basically said he said I still believe in classical strength work to a certain degree, but I do believe he has he he definitely has a point with like there needs to be this more acceptance or an awareness and acknowledgement that like there's a motor control aspect to this because again you know yourself you get guys there's guys in a weight room like here's a classic example Andre de Grasse I was at Altus Andre de Grasse if you were a meathead walking into a weight room you'd be so unimpressed with him in a weight room like he you know so to, to, to the classical strength coach he's weak he's actually piss weak but then he goes out on a, on a track and field and he fucking smashes any fucker near him like so his ability to express force so again people have this thing that strength is like squatting and it's like no no go back it's the force velocity curve that's what we're talking. it's force at different velocities so when he's unbelievable at producing force in this in the in the motor skill of sprinting and he's unreal at producing force in that skill in his sport like much better than the guy in the gym who can like the powerlifter basically you know what i mean because mm-hmm. and this is your thing too. If if squatting was the thing that made you really fast, and powerlifters should be the greatest sprinters ever, but they're not because they've taken it to such an extreme in their sports at that to that on that spectrum that you know they have to be able to produce the velocities and in that movement. That's your thing that Bosch. It's a, that's a skill. Brushing your teeth is a skill. Writing is a skill. Sprinkling salt on your meal. They're all motor skills. And I just think yeah. we lost sight of that with like these physical qualities and. That we started yes. like you know so like you look again the grass like oh, he's piss weak yeah piss weak doing a barbell squat but he's unbelievably strong on a track if you're talking about putting if you're talking about generating force he's on he's one of the best people in the entire world at this moment at putting force in the ground 
through the motor skill of sprinting, but he's not good at putting force in the ground with a bar in his back sl- in a slower, heavier movement in the weight room than he is to to like yourself because you you know you you're more jacked <laughs> and like you know like a, a weightlifter or a powerlifter because they're different motor tasks. And I just think that that's in fairness to Bosch, he was really kind of like, no, you guys are missing this massive piece here, and that's kind of where I've been the last few years too with strength training. It's a conversation I would love to have with you sometime offline because I think my thoughts on it aren't clear enough to go on a podcast. I'd be all over the place. But it's a kind of a, <laughs> it, like literally, it's one of these questions. Like it's so it sounds so simple, but it kind of stomps you. Like so, it's like you know when you say to people, "What's fatigue and what's pain?" and people go, "Oh, we know what pain and fatigue is." Like right, explain it to me. What is it? You know, and like you go, well, fatigue is you're tired. Okay, well, why? Well, you lose substrates or uh, no, no, because they've done tests where like the glycogen's still there and ATP's still there. So what is it? And like well, it's central, your brain. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Yeah, you can keep going. And then, like, pain, it's like, yeah. oh, well, pain is like your nociceptors. And, like, yeah, but, like, why is something painful for one person and not for another or different? You know, it's just fucking loads of stuff. But with strength training, like, why do we need to strength train? Like, why? And then, so I know some people are going to say, well, injury reduction, or they'll go to the classic for Zaskiorski, well, yeah, you know, motor recruitment, synchronization, rate coding. And it's like, yeah, but I've just said there that, like, Andre de Grasse would have shit motor unit recruitment, shit rate coding, shit synchronization in a squat. But if you could measure it somehow when he sprint it, it'd be off the charts. Yeah. So I'm just like, why why are we strength training then? Like what like and I know there is there is I just that's it's a it's a question I just want to have a deeper conversation with. Like, why are we actually doing heavy strength work? And and like with strength, again, people are thinking that it's like when you say strength too, people are like Trap bar deadlift, deadlift, bench. It's like, well, strength is actually just a biomotor quality. And what we're really talking about is actually force at slow speeds when we're talking about that, really. So it's just a deep conversation yeah. we don't want to have. Like, So there's a thing in the in the Poliquin like, lineage, right? It's uh, The quote is, strength is the mother of all qualities. And it's true when you're looking at the weight room, right? If you get a guy stronger, he'll be able to move a lighter load longer and yeah. faster than he would be if he were weaker or if you compare two guys like that's 100% true but what the poliquin you know what the poliquin lineage and i mean i guess to be fair what most strength coaching lineage has taken that to mean is that like just get as strong as possible and everything else will improve and like it's one of the things with my background where i actually started in the field doing more speed work and track work before I was a strength coach. Like I lifted and everything. Right. But you know, we, if you have a kid who doesn't know how to run or, or moves inefficiently, like our, our guarantee with the place I worked with was I think 0.25 faster in 12 weeks on your 40, like minimum, minimum guarantee, or you get your $2,000 back. So that was a big deal for us. Like we had to deliver on those results and there was like little to no strength component to that. It was mechanics and technique and understanding biomechanics and the joint angles and all of this stuff to acceleration mechanics, to maximum velocity mechanics, to uh, reactive mechanics or like the agility tests, you know, all that stuff. And the, the Poliquin side has taken that so to the extreme, you know, but what these, what the guys don't understand because they didn't ever they don't understand enough about what was done in the past. Like, so, so Charles trained Dwight Phillips, for example, right. And probably one of the most explosive, probably the most explosive person Charles said he ever trained, but he trained him like a bodybuilder because he didn't need to get stronger. He didn't need to get faster. Like he, Charles was basically said, like, if I built him a bigger engine, he had a better ability to express 
the strength and the power that he already had, which was more than enough. And he got better and stronger and faster. And then one of actually one of my other mentors trained him either before or after that and basically said the same thing in a different way. You know, when he got Dwight in the weight room and they did power cleans and all these other things, he didn't really try to make him super strong or super fast in the weight room. He just sort of maintained and tried to express some qualities with, you know, decent effort because the guy was so gifted. You don't need to do the same thing for those people or or like for, for so for high school kids, right? If you can teach a high school kid how to run properly and get him a little stronger, that's better than one or the other. You know, and like I just said, one of the videos I just posted on my, my membership site was about the research with tempo and speed and everything. And it's overwhelmingly clear in the research that training at high speeds and low speeds at different times in the course of a program gets someone stronger and faster more than only low speeds or more than only high speeds. You know, so like it, it's... <laughs> No matter what your like my wheelhouse in terms of the weight room for speed stuff is Olympic weightlifting. I feel like I'm really good at it. I've been doing it for 20 years, you know, learned from one of the best Olympic coaches in, in the States um, and, and other stuff too. It's like, you can, you can move on the force velocity curve. If your if your tool is Olympic weightlifting, you know, you can do different grips, you can do different heights for, you can do a different height than a different grip for speed strength and do a different height than different grip for strength speed and get slower speeds and faster speeds, power cleans versus power snatches. Like those are different rates of force and different places on the, on the force time curve, you know, and that don't really like the whole strength is the mother of all qualities thing. Like it, that bugs me because it's become so dogmatic on, on, you know, the family tree of that I'm a part of that gets like bastardized. You know, Charles would have people count calories if they needed to count calories. Charles would have people do aerobics if they needed to do aerobics, you know, but everybody like hears him say one thing in one book and it's like, well, he didn't know what he's fucking talking about. He never did that. Like, well, you don't know. You know, <laughs> you know dude did this for 40 years. He did a lot of different stuff. Trained me different than he would train you or trained that person different than he trained that person, right? So that's where like the whole system thing, like it, it gets really bogged down and, and you need to understand all the points of view for, for each, you know, like with the discussion we have with D loads, right? Like you got to understand different things for different people, you know, can't do everything the same for everybody. Yeah. We'll, we'll wrap up now, but it, it, it reminds me, there's a, a podcast called the athletic and it's like a, it's a podcast where there, there's tons of different sports podcasts on it. So they cover everything from like soccer to American football to basketball, whatever. But the American football one, it's called the American football show. It's very good. And there's one called the GM podcast. And it's these two guys, Randy Mueller is one. And the other guys, the other gentleman's name has just escaped me now. But there, there's a quote that one of them can constantly say on that podcast. So like whenever they're talking about something going on in one of the organizations in the NFL, so if there's like just something bubbling behind the scenes and, you know, he'd say, you know, what's what's your thought on this? What's your thought on that? One of the guys would always say, listen, there's something we don't know, the knowing of which changes everything. So that kind of goes into like the political thing. Well, I didn't, he didn't count calories or, you know, he, you know, he said aerobics is bollocks. It's like, listen, like you were, you, you weren't beside him all the time. Cause it reminds me of Charlie Francis. People are like, well, Charlie always did high low. And it was always, he never did anything in 70 to a, a 70, between 75 and 95, never. And he talked to Derek Hansen and Derek was like, well, that's not really true. <laughs> like Derek, Derek was his right hand man for years, and then uh, Kevin Tyler, who did a lot of work with Charlie, is like, yeah, that's not a hundred percent true either. You know what I mean? There was there was yeah. a lot more gray in there than it's made up. It's because when you're writing a book, you kind of have to be a little more, you know, yeah. System. And then you also with books too, you've only so much space. It's like 
it's like uh you, you know you'd be there with the publishers like the publisher's like you only have 200 pages for this book and it's like oh fuck but i need context I'm like well tough shit yeah it's like obama at the moment obama bringing out his book the promised land so he's bringing his memoirs out in volumes because he literally said i and i i, I love uh like political books and all that. so i was reading the, i read that book last year and at the start po- or obama goes listen He's like, I couldn't do this in one book. He's like, I have to give context. He's like, he, his whole thing was like, if I'm writing a book, I have to be able to give the full context. So his first book, right, only brings him from like basically the start of his life up to Bin Laden, 2011. <laughs> yeah, and and like say really like it's bringing him, it, it brings him up really from since he was a politician really to to 2011 because you know the, but he's younger now he doesn't spend too much time in his early parts of his life. It's more so when he gets into politics. So. Like the book is like over seven hundred pages, and he only brings it up to two thousand eleven. So he still has another fucking, what another like five, five or more years, six years basically, yeah, six years to go on his administration because he just wanted to give such context and everything. Because obviously, when he got into office, there was a fucking banking crisis and the car industry was dumping. So he wants to say like why he did what he did in those moments, which was obviously understandable, you know. Uh, Rob, so we better let you go here. Um. Really appreciate that. That was fantastic. And obviously the usual plugs, like where can people find out more about you? What have you got to offer? I know you have a mentorship site um, or a membership site, but that is a, you mentor in there. So mentorship, <laughs> a membership site. Um, yeah. So like social media, all that, where can people contact you if they want to reach out? Yeah. So on uh, Instagram, it's just Robert C. Jacobs. Um, I do have the the membership site. So it's uh, outlawstrength.thinkific.com. Um, and we got the, the options there. So it's 99 bucks a month for about two hours worth of content on a bunch of different subjects every month with Q and A's and, and all that. And then uh, if you want to inquire about training, all the details for actually doing online trainings on outlawstrength.com. Yeah. And you actually take, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Cause I just saw this on your social media there a couple of weeks back. You, you take some, uh, one-on-one clients and you, like, you take them, they kind of stay with you for a few days and train with you. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, we'll do like private internships. So the the most recent, yeah, the most recent one I did was uh, six day, so Monday through Saturday, and we did uh, nine to six thirty or seven. Usually, that's how it worked, and um, you know, multiple. So you basically tailor the experience, right? He wanted three, two to three training sessions a day, so we did that most of the most of the time, except for the yeah, sixth day because yeah. it's correct. Um, you know, so it's exposing training methodology, nutrition. Uh, we we spent probably three or four full days the entire day just on the whiteboard looking at here's how I wrote my programs before with context and you know all, all the details right and then basically going through all right, well here's a blueprint of how we should do it and then here's how you take that blueprint and individualize it for all your different you know clients and situations so we you know really probably spent four of the six days just whiteboarding stuff uh, on on how to fine tune program design for specifics and nutrition and and all that stuff too. That's unbelievable. I just um did, did that individual did he stay with you or I just stayed close by. There's hotels yeah, and stuff. Yeah, right I was wondering because so, yeah. I just seen it like I saw he was training two times a day and it was kind of in your you know in your office or your house or whatever and it looked it looked amazing. It did look really good. Like see all the supplements and then it was kind of like training and then there was a lecture and training because in my mind like I was like that's that's quality education like because you're getting obviously the practical you know you're going through some theory then you're living a bit of it going through some practical elements of the session you're also getting yeah. to ask you specific questions and that's great that you got a tailor too like this is what i want from this experience it makes it so much more focused too because you know a seminar they're so general and they're you know they're they're there's such a large audience it's hard to individualize it. in that instance like you know that was tailored to that person and obviously because it was so intimate an intimate setting too yeah that's that's fantastic 
Yeah. Because like what we talked about before, that's what you don't get with seminars, right? Like yeah. with the book, the con, you don't get the context of, yeah, here's the, here's the rule, but then here's all the exceptions to the rule that you need to use in this case. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. So uh, I'll wrap it up here. I'll take it away to offline, but for everyone listening, make sure you check out Rob's stuff. I'll have it all linked up in the show notes, but until next time, take care, be well and stay strong. Thank you.